0: Thank you, Kaylee. That was uh, refreshing for us to come into the presence of the Lord. And it's good to see you folks back. Greetings to you who are here and to those that are out there on the airwaves. Uh, Today we want to uh, continue in this extended series we've been uh, working on, thinking about the God who is here. The God who is present with us in spite of COVID-19. The God who is not wearing a face mask, who is not social distancing from you. He is present with us with that promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. God is here and... uh, as we've seen various times through this study, God is great and God is good. We hold those together uh, as two fundamental truths about this God and realize that He is one who seeks a relationship with us and a partnership, that He not only desires to be our Father, but He desires to bring us into the work of his kingdom. And we, uh, uh, Kaylee mentioned that in her prayer. So we've looked at these many positive qualities about God. Today I want to think with you about an aspect of God's character that for many people does not seem positive. And so we're going to have to wrestle through some of that and hopefully allow, uh, if we have those, that sense that this is not a positive aspect of God's character, we need to ask how can we be corrected in our understanding to become more in line with what Scripture uh, teaches us. So, what I'm referring to is the idea that God is a judge, that this is a fundamental quality of his character and it is one that runs through all of the Bible so we're going to look at a couple passages here two drawn from the Psalms and one from the last book in the Bible, book of Revelation so follow along the Lord is a God who avenges O God who avenges, shine forth <clears throat> Rise up, judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the foreigner. They murder the fatherless. They say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob takes no notice. Psalm 98. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. <clears throat> Revelation. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Praise Yah, (laughs) praise Yahweh. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Again they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And of course, the great prostitute here is also in Revelation called Babylon, uh, the wicked city on seven hills, which in that case is probably referring to Rome. But behind all that is that long tradition going all the way back to the book of Genesis and the tower of Babel. That's Babylon. And this this expression of, of human arrogance over against God, and in the end, God judges Babylon, uh, all human pretension, and uh, brings an end to it. Their smoke goes up forever and ever. So, we need to think about this theme of God as the judge, and first off, let's... uh, Let's talk about the need for balance, huh? Well, here's the conductor going at it with the orchestra. They're uh, playing, I don't know, Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, all right? Doesn't matter a whole lot for the purpose of this illustration. And... uh, And the job of the conductor is to try to interpret Beethoven in a way that if Beethoven were in the audience, he would say, that's, that's what I wanted. That's the way it was meant to be heard. That's the job of the conductor, huh? to bring all the instruments together, to give them their appropriate voice, and out of that grows the the melody, the harmony, the beauty of the symphony. <clears throat> now, you can suppose that if one of the instruments got cantankerous, you know, the the trumpeter, the lead trumpet got up in the morning, he hadn't slept very well, so he was kind of cranky, and, uh, <clears throat> and then he went out for breakfast, and they broke, the yolks on his eggs, and uh, his car wasn't running very well, and uh, the day just didn't go well at all for him, and then on the way to the concert hall at night, he got stuck in traffic on the school kill, and just barely made it in, so he's upset, and he's disturbed, and and he says to himself, I just wish I could blow my brains out, And and he's in the middle of Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, and, and he says to himself, that's it, I've had it. And he goes off score and starts doing some loud, extemporaneous stuff. And, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's so good that the audience applauds, applauds probably not but but maybe so but what would be the difficulty with that the biggest difficulty is that that we're no longer hearing beethoven right because the trumpeter is not playing the part within the orchestration that he's been assigned to and things are out of balance and the conductor is frustrated and Beethoven, if he could hear it, would be frustrated as well. We need to hear all the instruments. Now, the same is true as we try to hear Scripture. I think most of the problems that come up in the church with regard to false teaching are not not teachings that are per se necessarily wrong but they are teachings that are emphasized to such a point that they are out of balance with the rest of the themes of Scripture. You look at most of the great heresies in the history of the church. They are often emphasizing particular aspects of truth, but they've done it to the neglect of other aspects, and the balance has been lost, and then people get off track. As we talk about the judgment of God, we need to keep this, really, in mind. Because the judgment of God in people's hearing of Scripture is often in their minds played against the theme of God's love. And sometimes one is emphasized to the exclusion or the near exclusion of the other. I grew up in uh, in a church where what I heard was the judgment of God. Now, to be fair, that was what I heard. That was my perception, right? It may be that the church was more balanced in expressing both the love of God and the judgment of God. It may be that they were playing the score pretty effectively, but I wasn't hearing it that way. In our day, there's been a move, you know, in the years since then, I think what I heard was typical for a lot of people growing up in those days in conservative churches. Today, there's been a shift. Today, there has been a shift toward emphasizing the the very deep and powerful truths of the love of God but to emphasize it in such a way that in various places the judgment of God has either been terribly minimized or at places effectively denied. You know, a few years back uh, Rob Bell did the book, what, Love Wins? And said a lot of good things in that book. It's what doesn't get emphasized that creates the problem. So, as we start out on this this morning, I just want to say, let's try to hear this theme of the judgment of God as hard as it is for us in the present climate to hear it. Let's try to let the whole symphony, the whole orchestra play for us. All right, well, let's reflect then a little bit on what I'll call the cry for justice. The cry for justice is a cry that arises through the whole of the Bible. Virtually from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, when humans decide that they're going to run life on their own without God, there is this cry for God to come and set things right. Do you remember the story in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain, out of envy, kills his brother? And God comes to talk to Cain about that. What does does God say? He says, the the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. A cry for a justice. And... uh, And we saw that in Psalm 94. Oh God who avenges, shine forth. God the judge, rise up. The cry for justice. Now that's a cry for a number of things. First, I think it's a cry for revelation. It's a a cry for the truth about the world and about individual actions for the truth to be made known often evil is hidden and so Psalm 94 says God who avenges shine forth let the light come into the darkness Gospel John tells us that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and the cry for justice is for God to take the cosmic flashlight and show us what's really going on. No uh, backroom deals anymore, right? No smoke and mirrors, but rather the truth about situation. So revelation is part of what this cry for justice is. Jesus talks about this. He says, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Now, at that point, I'm starting to pull back. Are you? (laughs) I think this would be a great idea for you. As long as I can get, you know, special treatment. Very solemn words. The cry for justice is a cry for revelation to take place, and Jesus says it is going to happen. Or again, he says, I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, by your words you will be condemned. Every careless word... I've said careless things over the years that I can't even remember. But there will be an accounting. There will be a revelation. That's the cry for justice in Scripture. It's also a cry for retribution. It's right there in Psalm 94. God who judges, rise up. Pay back the proud for what they've done. Pay them back. Remember these words from Paul we've looked at a number of times in our study of Job. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for what a man sows that he will also reap. Now, you say, yeah, but in Job, that's not working too well. Right, right. And And so part of wisdom, the wisdom tradition in the Old Testament is to say, we understand this principle that God is not mocked. That there is retribution, there is justice that is coming, but you don't necessarily see that justice worked out in the short term. So the wicked may die in their beds comfortably and the righteous may die under great suffering in this world. But this overall theme of scripture that we have to hear is that God, by the nature of who he is, will not let that go on forever. That there is an accounting that is coming. And Scripture gives regular warning about that revelation, retribution. But then here's this third thing a cry for justice is a cry for restoration. And this is one of the ways I think we need to hear the message of Scripture about God's judgment and understand its positive intent. God the Creator says that rather than letting the sinful, rebellious world simply dissolve or be destroyed, or bringing destruction Himself, His judgment is going to be restorative. God is coming, in the the phrase I like from... NT writes, He's coming to set the world to rights. Now, again, it's frightening because He's going to set me right. You don't have to do that. Isn't that a good thing? He's going to set me right with, with truthfulness and integrity. He'll do that. So that's frightening to me, but yet, on the other hand, when you look at what's going on in the world, isn't there something deeply resident in your gut and in your heart that says, This world needs to be fixed? The truth needs to be told, and accounts need to be settled so that the world can flourish as God's world was intended to flourish from the day it was created. And the cry for justice is the cry for God to do that. And and so in the end, justice becomes something not just to be feared, but to be celebrated. And the the poetry of, of Psalm 98 is beautiful, isn't it? Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Why? Because the Lord comes to judge the earth. Let's have a celebration. And all creation joins in the celebration. The creation which Paul tells us groans Travailing in pain. Waiting for the liberation that God is going to bring. Psalm 98 says everybody's going to sing. Everything in creation is going to sing for joy when the Lord comes to do that because it's going to be restoration. So what is the character of God then who will do this? And We'll mention a couple things that stand out. Obviously, one is the character of God that says he is righteous. He does what is right. He's coming to set the world to rights, and he will do that well because that is his character. He knows what is right. He's committed to doing what is right. There is a uh, powerful image of this, that the prophet Amos saw in Amos chapter 7, I think it is. He had a couple different visions from God. Amos, what do you see? Well, I see this, Lord. Amos, what do you see? And the third vision, Amos says, Lord, I I see a plumb line. A plumb line that is along a wall. And the wall is straight. I see you, Lord, holding the plumb line. The Lord says, that's what you see. Yeah. And Amos, here's what I've come to do. I have come to set a plumb line in the midst of my people. And because I've come to do that, I'm going to bring judgment upon them. Why? Because the plumb line measuring the wall that has been built in Israel indicates that the wall is crooked. It needs to be torn down. Righteousness is the character of God that says he is the standard for how life is to be lived. And his judgment will show the deficiencies of all of us. He will judge in righteousness. He will do what is right, and he will do it with fairness, equity. So that's in Psalm 94 as well, Uh, you will judge the people with equity, with fairness. Have you seen this uh, sign around town, different places? Equal justice for all. I think it's in the context uh, of uh, black white relationships. But it's bigger than that, isn't it? This this is a fundamentally biblical principle. That before the law, ultimately before God's law, we are assured that God judges with fairness, with equity. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, the prophets weigh in against human judges, human systems that deny the rights of the poor or the disadvantaged. Remember, uh, it was right here in uh, Psalm 94, verse 6. They crush your people, Lord. They oppress your inheritance. And here's the three that show up again and again in Scripture. They crush, they slay the widow... And the foreigner, and they murder the fatherless. Orphans, widows, and foreigners, immigrants. And God's bringing judgment, God who avenges, shine forth against those who mistreat people in those situations. Very serious. Or Psalm 86, 86, 82. where where God judges among the gods. And apparently what that's suggesting there is that human judges stand in the place of God. So they're called gods, small g. God judges among the judges, if you will, and says, you guys need to judge with equity and fairness and righteousness because that's what I do, and you represent me. Equal justice for all. Paul has a place in the book of Romans, end of chapter 1 and uh, beginning of chapter 2, where he has an extended discussion of the judgment and wrath of God. And uh, verse 11, chapter 2, is uh, his concluding statement on that. He says, there is no partiality with God. And we've, we've got, you know, we've got a big problem in the world, but let's bring it closer to home. We have, a, we have a big problem in the U.S. that judgment, in many places, justice is for sale. If you have lots of money, you have a major advantage in the American legal system because you can afford, you can afford the lawyers that other people can't. The character of God is that He draws, He holds the plumb line in the midst of human circumstances and He judges and He will judge with equity and fairness. All right, so we're going to pick up some of those themes of judgment next week. We actually need to talk about hell, and that's a hard topic, but next week we're going to do that. But before we leave this today, let's take a few moments and do what we've done before and ask, how is it that these various themes in the symphony of Scripture, how is it that they come together? And... uh, Specifically, what we've been trying to do is see that all of these themes play together to a focal point, which is God's revelation to us of who He is in the person of Jesus. So let's ask that question, where does this theme that runs all through the Bible about God as the righteous judge, how does that intersect with the story of Jesus? We'll just uh, take a couple of verses that we, we could look at many different ones, but a couple from the Gospel of John. Jesus is anticipating the cross in John chapter 12. It's, uh, he says, the hour has come. And the hour in the Gospel of John is always the hour of his death. The hour has come. In verse 31, he says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. He would be crucified between heaven and earth. Notice, it's the time for judgment. John 3, the apostle reflecting on Jesus' words to Nicodemus says, whoever believes in Him, that is, in Jesus, in the Messiah, is not condemned, judged. It's the same word that you have up in the passage before. Justice, judgment, condemnation. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe stands condemned, judged already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So the cross is about judgment. Let's let's just spin that out as we close here. So Jesus came to save. He came to die, to lay down his life, to bear the judgment, the justice, the condemnation that I deserve, that you deserve. So John, in chapter 3 as well, says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God loved the world. Jesus came to save. But here's the thing. Jesus looks at the cross and he talks about not just love, but he talks about judgment. The time has come for judgment on this world. What's that about? Well, I guess it's something like this. That the cross becomes God's plumb line for the world. The cross is the plumb line. The cross is the measurement of how God, the judge, who loves the world, for God so loved the world, but the God who loves the world who must nevertheless, because he is righteous, bring judgment upon the world. And the cross is the plumb line. The cross shows us the sin and the judgment that the world deserves. How does it do that? Well, that's a big story. Uh, We don't have time to explore all of that, but but certainly part of it is this that the cross is the condemnation by the world by the religious elites of Judaism by a corrupt politician the cross is their judgment on the one truly innocent man in human history. The cross is a plumb line, huh? It shows us what the world is. Or think about it from another perspective. The cross is God's solution to save the world. Now think about it. What? is needed for God to save you. And I say, well, all right. Uh, if We need to talk about that. Uh, at least let me point out that uh, I think I'm doing better than my neighbor. I mean, I know I've got some issues, but If you see the way my neighbor operates or or that guy at work, over the top. Now see, if we begin to understand the cross, all of that falls away. All of that excuse making, all of that comparison with other people. The cross is the plumb line of God's judgment because it says that the only thing that will avail to save people like you and me. The only thing is that God's innocent Son should die one of the most horrible deaths that the world has ever imagined. That's a plumb line, isn't it? That measures just how deep our problem is. The cross is God's plumb line. And then here is something else that uh, maybe we can get our heads around a little bit. The cross in the middle of history discloses what God's judgment will be at the end of history. You get that? Jesus said... The time has come for judgment on this world, in the cross. The cross tells us what God's evaluation of the world is going to be at the end of the world. The judgment of the world is going to be measured by the condemnation and the suffering of Jesus. Jesus is the substitute who comes to bear the world's guilt and condemnation. It works for us as individuals. Say, what what is it going to be like for me to face the judgment of God at the end of the world? When the dead, small and great, stand before him, and the books are opened, and everyone is judged... Now, of course, in a day when God's judgment has been minimized and we talk about the love of God, uh, a lot of people don't even want to go there. They don't want to think about that. Or they assume that God is not the judge. That's not God's business. God is gracious and loving and grandfatherly. And so you get all kinds of optimism out there of people who, you know, a friend dies who in life exhibited no interest in the things of God and they say, well, I know they're in a better place. How do you know that? The cross discloses what's going to happen, friends. Jesus died to bear sin, not his own, ours. And so John says, in those verses we looked at in John chapter 3, the one who believes in him is not condemned. The one who does not believe has been condemned, has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So it works something like this, right? The cross, and our response to the cross, discloses what happens at the end. At the end, the dead, small and great, stand before God. And they are judged. They're evaluated. There are those who stand at the end as those who have believed that Jesus was the sin bearer. That he came to bear their judgment. They believe that. And John says, they're not condemned. They're not condemned now in the present. And they're not condemned at the day when God's judgment is unveiled for the world to see. When everything is disclosed. Paul understood this very clearly, didn't he, in Romans chapter 8. He said, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation now, no condemnation forever, because God's judgment has taken place in the cross, and they've received that judgment, that gift, if you will, that Jesus stood in their place. But to those who reject that, to those who do not believe, John says, they're condemned already. The Bible intends that none of us should get to the judgment of God and be surprised. Although, here's the solemn thing, friends. Remember that parable that Jesus told about about those who appear before his judgment, and some of them are surprised. But the cross is God's means that you and I should never be surprised when we come to the end. Next week, we're going to talk about that difficult subject of hell. Lots of discussion among Christians these days and we will need to look at that. Let's pray together. Oh God, we almost hesitate to take the words of Psalm 94 to our lips. Oh God who avenges, shine forth because we're ashamed, Lord, by. Some of that stuff that maybe we've even forgotten that nonetheless is going to be revealed one day. But we're also encouraged. We're encouraged to know that you will not let the world go on forever as it is. You will set things right. And by your great love and goodness and your grace, You've even made a way that sinners like us can participate in that marvelous renewal. You're going to set things right in us, Lord. You're going to bring us to the place that you intended at the very beginning of creation. To be your children, loved by you and partners in the great work of kingdom building and recreation. So we give you thanks. We rejoice in your love and we reaffirm our deep faith in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. So go with us this day, Lord, encourage our hearts, uh, keep our, our minds fixed upon you, and, uh, and help us to be aware in the day-to-day uh, life, even in this strange world of COVID, that you are present and that your face is open and accessible to us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.